Would you pray with me that God might open our hearts to his word, that we would believe what he has to say to us this week and for the balance of this year while he gives us breath. Father, thank you for your grace and your mercy to us. Thank you. Thank you for giving us Jesus who has come and died for us that we might live for you. May this text settle deep within our soul that we may walk in the newness and the freedom of life that you have given to us through the power of the Spirit. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, I I thought about keeping this short because I know that many of you were out celebrating the new year, but I decided not to, so (laughs) it's an extra long one. Uh, You know, New Year's resolutions, everybody tends to make them or they think about making them. Most of us don't realize this, but actually this isn't new to our age or Western culture. At least some of the history of New Year's resolutions was it began back in they think as early as 4,000 years ago back in Babylon, um, where at this new moon of the new year that there was some celebration and e- even seeking a degree of forgiveness and surprisingly the return of farm equipment. I don't know why that was the big thing there, but, but it, there was making amends. You, you see it crystallized a little more in, in Rome uh, in the first century B.C. where um, New Year was moved back to January. Of course, the Roman god Janus, or Janus, was uh, the god with two faces that could look backwards and forwards. It was the keeper of doors and gates, which kind of set in motion this idea of looking back and looking forward a little bit more in Western culture. And so, regardless of the history, though, it's kind of entrenched now in our culture that we are usually making some degree of resolutions. And if you don't make them, you at least are thinking, I want change to occur this year. I mean, you do look forward wanting things to be different. I don't think anybody here says, I am absolutely content and satisfied in my life. I need no change. I mean, that is the height of, I don't know, arrogance or ignorance or some combination of the two. So we all want change, and many of you are looking at change in terms of, well, perhaps it's a physical change. I want to eat less. I want to exercise more. Maybe for some it's more uh, financial. I want to save more money. I want to save for vacation. I don't want to budget. For some of you, I think it might be more relational, where you're thinking, I need to restore some relationships that have gotten cold, right? I need to maybe, I need to develop some new friendships, Um, What I find, though, is that a lot of us often forget that there are spiritual issues as well. Um, I mean, we wouldn't go out to dinner. I wouldn't go to an appointment without checking in the mirror, making sure that things are somewhat presentable. And yet we can live year after year after year without thinking, where am I with God this past year? What happened and where do I want to be? I try to help you do that by every year asking, Do you love Christ more now than you did last year? Now, that is not an abstract question. I mean, if you are growing in a love for Jesus Christ, there will be a wake of evidence behind you. It it may be that you're desiring for God's word to govern you more. It might be an increased desire for holiness. It it could be a greater concern for the physical and spiritual well-being of those around you. It, It could be 
a quicker time to forgive. It could be a greater desire for heaven and seeing Christ face to face. These are some of the things that would be evidencing an increasing love for Jesus Christ. When you look back at the year, what have you found? Have you found marked increase in your love for Christ? If you have, rejoice. I mean, be thankful. It's a mark of God's spirit. If, if you look back at the year and you haven't seen it, I'm sure it's measured with a uh, I'm sure it's marked by a measure of disappointment and perhaps frustration. But either way, what I'd like to do is just take all of us and just look forward for a few minutes this year, particularly as you look at this text with me. This text in Second Corinthians is a beautiful, it's a very complicated and difficult text to interpret, at least in the first uh, 16 verses. But it's a good text to get us looking forward to how can we change? How can we see legitimate change come in our lives whereby we grow in Christ-likeness? That's what we want to see in our lives this year. I think if you're a Christian, that's what you want to see. Now, this will be beginning like a two-month series on, it's titled Life Together. I think it was in your bulletin last week or this week. And really what it's trying to do is we're trying to grow in our love for Christ using various means of grace, that our life together would be, uh, would be greater, more satisfying, and fulfilling, and honoring. So turn with me, if you will, to 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 12 uh, to 18. Paul writes this to the church at Corinth. He says, Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face, that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened, for, this, for to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Spirit, now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to the other. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Now, let me just look with you. That verse 18 is kind of a verse that would be a summary of the entire chapter. And so in this verse, Paul is encouraging us. He's saying, with unveiled face, Beholding the glory of the Lord, we are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to the other. Yeah. Let me just go with the handheld. So, Paul, in in verse 18, it's speaking in summary form to the entire chapter. Paul wants us to change, and change is going to come about as we behold as we contemplate, as we consider, as we grow in love with Christ, we're going to change. But you notice at the beginning of verse 18 that he says, with unveiled face. That's kind of fundamental to change, that our faces are being unveiled, that, that we can behold, we can see Christ. Now listen, this isn't expected just by virtue of you living. Prior to this passage, Paul is speaking about the veiled faces of the Israelites. He's drawing back to Exodus 34, where Moses, if you remember, 
went up on the mountain and received the law of God and spoke with God. His face was shining. And so after preaching to the people what God would have shared, he would veil his face. Why? Because the people had just built the the golden calf. They had sinned. Their hearts were hardened. And so the hardness of the people caused Moses to veil his face. That wasn't just in Exodus 34. Paul's drawing from that illustration, and he's looking at today. Look with me in verse 15. He says, yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. In other words, a continual rejection of Christ is spoken of as a veil covering their eyes. They cannot see Christ for who he is. There is no change for people. There is no lasting, long-term change for people outside of having this veil removed. And that's what he gets to. He says, but when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. In other words, Paul's using this language of turning or conversion, that when one turns and is converted and believes in Christ, that veil is removed, that now he can behold Christ in all of his glory. It's, it's of great necessity that the veil be removed. Let me remind you of an example of this in Scripture. Paul, going on the road to Damascus, right? he's going with the intention to both imprison and perhaps punish people who are following Christ in the way. So he is dedicated to the task. He's excited about the task. He's going to do it. He has done it. He's going to do it. And then, of course, on the way he meets the Lord, the Lord reveals his glory, and Paul is converted. Paul turns. He now sees the Lord differently, right? He, He understands Christ differently. On the way there, he saw him as a fraud, as a fake, but now he sees him as the Lord of glory, as the Lord of history. And so he's converted and he changes. Now he's going to worship Christ, not punish those following Christ. Now he will be punished as he used to punish others for following Christ. So he turns. It's what he means by conversion. So those who turn to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now listen, how is that veil removed? That's the question. How does, do we remove the veil? Does God remove the veil? Well, you see it in the next verse. He says in 17, now the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. So following, turning to the Lord, he speaks about the Spirit. I don't think Paul is trying to deny the, the members of the Trinity, saying the Lord is the Spirit. He's not saying the second person and the third person are the same. He's saying that the Lord Christ, as Charles was giving word to, works through the agency or the ministry of the Spirit to bring about freedom from those who have been covered with a veil. We are now free to see Christ for who he is. This is the work of the Holy Spirit. In John 16, the Spirit is the one that convicts us of sin and unrighteousness. He opens our eyes to who we are. I mean, for a long time, I thought that I really had it all together. I mean, I was a fairly moral individual. I, I, was, a, I was a good citizen. I was a decent son, moderate husband. I'm going downward here. But, but the reality of it is, I would have defended myself before you that God should find me fine, acceptable. But when the Spirit opens your eyes to yourself, you realize the holiness of God, and you realize your own brokenness and sinfulness is much more profound than you would have ever imagined. You would have found it hard to believe that you're as sinful as you would once the Spirit opens your eyes. But the Spirit of God just doesn't open your eyes to yourself, but The Spirit is opening your eyes to the glory of Christ, that the Spirit helps you to see that Jesus is this King of glory, 
that Jesus is the sin bearer, that the righteousness of God is in Christ, that he's the savior of the world, the redeemer. Before, you may have thought about Christ as a good man, a prophet, a teacher. You may have saw him as somebody that really can help people, a good example to follow. But when the Spirit opens your eyes to the glory of Christ, you see him altogether differently. You see him as unique, divine, glorious, one that you want to be with. You love him. That's the work of the Spirit. That you can't take the veil off your eyes. No man, no argument, no position can remove the veil. The Spirit of God has to do this. Now, Paul had already written this in the first letter to the Corinthians, chapter 12. He says this, he says, No one can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Spirit. The Spirit is the one that gives freedom to us that we can see Christ for who he is. You cannot believe in Christ apart from the work of the Spirit. So I think Paul's saying that, that there is no change in our lives until the Spirit opens our eyes, the veil is removed, we see Christ for who he is. Now, uh, so that's fundamental to change is the removal of the veil. Now, many people still have a veil over their eyes. Now, it's interesting, when I was looking at this, referencing uh, Exodus 34, and Moses is speaking about these Israelites that had the veil over their eyes. He's not speaking to the atheist here. He's not speaking to the, the one who is absolutely diametrically opposed to God. He's speaking to people who were religious. He was speaking to people who believed in God. He was speaking to people who were part of this community of faith. And so I think there's a word here for us that within the church proper, that there are people who have the veil over their eyes. They are religious. They're living under the veil, though, and this is what I mean by this. And this kind of helps us define who is the Christian and who is the religious person. That The one living under the veil, the religious person, is one who is still seeing the law or moral performance as a means of finding acceptance with God. The religious person is the one who is seeing his own deeds as instrumental to finding acceptance and confirmation from God that, that they are accepted. Now, this does two problems. Number one, for some of the religious folk, that you don't do well with it. You, you fail to meet the law. You're convicted. You're condemned. You walk in guilt. It's a terrible situation. Many people within the church are burdened with guilt. Now, that could be for a number of reasons, but one reason is clearly they are seeing God's love for them measured by their performance and their obedience. And it leaves you with a heavy burden of guilt, and many people walk away from the church. I think other people may do well with a degree of righteousness and a degree of law-keeping. And that can tend towards arrogance and independence. Well, look at my life. My life's in great shape. Look at my belief system. My belief system's in great shape. Here's the deal. In both cases, they're beholding themselves, and they're not beholding Christ. They're looking at themselves and what they do or what they believe as a means of finding acceptance with God. And I would say to you that that is living under the veil. And an example I would give you is Nicodemus in chapter 3 of John. Remind yourself who Nicodemus was. He was no, well, he was a man of God, at least in that system. He, he believed. He was a Pharisee. Nicodemus practiced rules of righteousness that you wouldn't even dream of practicing. 
He was a righteous man in the eyes of his contemporaries. And yet, when Jesus came to see him, or I should say Nicodemus came to see him, Jesus said, you won't enter the kingdom of God unless you're born again. He's talking to a religious man. He's talking to a man who believes in God. He's talking to a man who does all the things he's supposed to do, and he has to believe. He has to be born again, Jesus says. So, so it's, I guess my word for the folks here that haven't turned to the Lord, that you're living under the veil, that if you spend more time beholding yourself and what you're doing, if you fall prey to this idea of, if I don't have my devotions five days in a row, then God somehow doesn't love me as much as he did last week when I had, then you're, you're, you're resting on the wrong thing. That doesn't mean that you're not a Christian per se, but it surely is denying you the joy and the freedom that the Spirit is to bring to the Christian. Now, to those who have turned to the Lord, the Spirit has opened your eyes. I don't need to convince you that you need a Savior. You already know it. That's a sign of being free. Now, the freedom that the Spirit brings for you, for the Christian, for the one who's turned to the Lord, the freedom is from bondage to the law. You're not living by the law. We will live in light of the law, but we're not living by the law. By that, I mean we're not finding our pleasure with God based upon our track record and performance. You're also free from the guilt produced by the law. Why? Because we have a Savior who has forgiven us and now has given us total forgiveness and freedom from that burden of, I didn't do this, I didn't do this. If I die tomorrow driving the car and I haven't confessed these last three sins, am I still responsible for those? He's given us freedom from the accusations of Satan. You know, Satan can only accuse the Christian based upon unforgiven sin. But if you've been forgiven, what can he accuse you of? You've been forgiven. He is forgiven. We have freedom from fear of death with the law. The Spirit gives us life. In fact, in Romans 8, Paul's, I think, saying these things. He's saying, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do, by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh. So there's freedom for us. Now, now to the Christian here, to those of you who have turned to the Lord, your eyes have been opened to your sin, they've been opened to the glory of Christ, and you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ. There is joy for us, a deep freedom, a freedom to live for his glory, because you love him. This is the freedom of the Christian. If you take my freedom and say this is a license to do whatever you want, you have not understood me. It is not a license to do whatever we want. It's a freedom to obey God because we love him, that love is the fuel. This is what I think Augustine was getting at when he said, love God and do what you want. If you land on, I get to do what I want, without tethering it to a love for God that produces obedience, then you've missed the point. So it's a love God and do what you want. And that way, we're not, we're not following God and serving God out of duty, but in fact, out of joy and satisfaction in all that we have in Christ. So for us ever to change this year, you have to fully understand, you have to have the veil removed. And if you haven't had the veil removed, then change will never come to you in a permanent way. You'll never be free to change. You'll always be bound by the law, bound by a certain set of standards and structures that you've set up for yourself.
But if you have had the veil removed, now we get to behold Christ with unveiled faces. And that's what Paul's getting at in verse 18. He's saying we with unveiled face. This is for all of us now. This isn't some mystical experience. To behold Christ is not some mystical experience for just the the few. It's not for clergy. He says, and we all with unveiled face, men, women, Jew, Gentile, All, unveiled face, beholding the glory of God. I mean, think about this for a minute. For you and I to change, for us to experience the transforming power of the Spirit of God, it's going to come by beholding Christ. Now, the word behold is kind of a difficult word to translate. It can mean reflect. The KJV has reflecting as in a mirror. And and I think it could mean that in terms of, you know, as you behold Christ, you reflect Christ to others. I think that's true. But to reflect would at least demand that you first have to behold. It's kind of like the object has to be in front of the mirror before it can reflect it. And so beholding Christ, the word kind of means to gaze, to look at, to contemplate, to ponder, to consider Christ. And, And for us to have change, it's going to be by beholding, by contemplating Christ. And his glory. I think about uh, David in Psalm 27 when he said that I long to dwell in the house of the Lord and to gaze at his beauty forever. Folks, if this is foreign to you, this is in part why you don't see change from year to year. To behold Christ, what do I mean by this? Let me just walk you through some examples. To behold Christ would be to behold his glory in creation. So in Colossians chapter 1, Jesus is given credit He says, for by him all things were made, and for him all things were made. So to behold Christ in creation, you know, you think about the cosmic dimensions of creation. Massive, right? You think about the magnificent intricacies of creation, the way weather and tides and and the moon and, and all the intricacies of how our world works, all done by the word of Christ. You think about this microscopic precision of our world, being on a certain axis, certain distance, at a certain angle that we can live here. When you think about creation, you're just left with gaping awe over the power of Christ. So when I behold Christ in his power, and then I look at the issues in my life, they begin to recede in distracting and in drawing me from faith. Or I think about the humiliation. I I behold Christ as he has taken flesh, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem me, to save me, that he left glory to become like us. I behold him. I I think about it. I contemplate it. I don't always like to go across the street to help somebody. He has come down from glory to save us. I behold Christ in his sacrifice. I consider the crown of thorns. I think about the nature of of the cross and the suffering and the jeering and the beard pulling in the face spitting, and I behold him in his willingness to sacrifice for me. My heart is drawn with love to him. I, I behold Christ in his, in his resurrection, you know, the power of God raising him from the dead. Now, now in glory, I think about John in chapter 1 of the book of Revelation, when he sees Christ, his face is shining in all of its strength, and he drops down as though dead. Beholding Christ is thinking about this, contemplating it, putting your life in relationship to that. I think about the ascension of Christ when he goes through the air. And the reason it says he goes through the air, because Satan was a prince of the air. So Jesus Christ is going through conquered territory, mastering the powers of darkness, 
not being threatened, not being hindered. That's Christ going up saying, I have all power and authority. I think about the seating of Christ at the right hand of God. Right now he sits, right now as I preach, he sits above rule, authority, power, dominion for the church. So when I bring fears and troubles of the church to him, I'm thinking he's sitting up there reigning for us to advance us. I behold him in his glory. If you don't behold him, if you don't contemplate him, if you don't dwell upon him, if your heart isn't moved to him, then change will not come because it's by beholding that we're being transformed. Now, folks, there are a lot of distractions to beholding Christ. Just living in this Western culture is distracting. Do you know if you're an average American that this year you will spend 3.6 days in traffic? between lights and traffic jams. The average American, you will spend one day just getting on and off the web over the year. You will spend a week watching commercials. Now, those are just distractions of life. Now, you add to it an over-love for Facebook or football or shopping or whatever it is, and all of a sudden, you have all this time evaporating, and it will distract you from being able to behold Christ. There's not just the distractions of life, the, the misplaced affections. I, I'm not going to give you all kinds of examples. You know what you love, and what you love can become inordinate. In other words, it become more than it should be loved. And that begins. It's kind of like in older language when a divorce would occur and the wife would sue the husband for being with another woman. She would sue that other woman for alienation of affections because, because this third party has alienated the one who is entitled to the affections that she's lost them. I wonder if the Lord would have a case against some of us and some of the things that we love that our affections that should be for him, for his glory, have been alienated. So there are both distractions and misplaced affections that will deny you beholding Christ. And if you don't behold Christ, you will not change. Because what he says is very clear. He says, we, we with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to the other. In other words, it's by beholding that you are transformed. In other words, you will become what you behold. So you become what you behold. The word transform is our word for metamorphosis, that transformation. The same words used with Jesus in the transfiguration, that outward change that they saw, you know, the blazing garments. In this case, I think it's more of an inward change. That the transformation, the sanctification that comes as you behold Christ will be an increased Christ-likeness. Your likes will become like Christ. Your character, your values, you will begin to think more like Christ. That happens over time as you behold him. So in my own life, uh, there were times when, again, in, in the business world, I would justify uh, playing fast and loose with the tax law. If I like the client, I might even do more. If he was a very well-paying client, then I might even stretch even more. But coming to Christ, beholding Christ, as I behold him with integrity, I realized I can't do that. Now, it wasn't, I wasn't under bondage. I have to do this. I loved him, and so I didn't want to dishonor his integrity. And so I didn't do that anymore and lost clients because of it. Lust, 
lust. So the temptation, the picture's there. It's no big deal. She's not being hurt. She got paid for what she did. I will. In- then I behold the Lord of purity. And I realized, I don't want that. It's not that I can't have it. I didn't want it. Because he's changing me as I beheld his purity. And you can go on down the list to envy or the fear of death. As you behold this resurrected king of glory, then the fear of death begins to transform. In fact, um, John Owen wrote a great book called The Glory of Christ. And he writes this, he says, If we regularly beheld the glory of Christ, our Christian walk with God would become more and more sweet and pleasant. Our spiritual light and strength would grow daily stronger, and our lives would more gloriously represent the glory of Christ. That's what he says. Death would be most welcome to us. Why? Because we get to see the one we've been only beholding. Now we get to see him face to face and become like him and finish that sanctification process. So that's beholding. You know, consider this. When the sun is shining in all of its strength, when the moon is, is tilted towards it perfectly, even at night, the moon can produce such light that it casts shadows at night. So, so the more we're pointed, the more we're beholding Christ, the more sanctifying power is coming on us, and we're changing, we're being transformed. Now, you've got to remember, though, that this transformation is progressive. It's incremental. You notice how he says that we're being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. It's a progressive thing. It's a year's thing. This is why I love long-term pastorates. As I'm going to share at the end of the sermon, I've seen a lot of you change. I mean, I've seen you, frankly, change dramatically, that you've progressed from one degree of glory to another. The change has occurred. Now, it doesn't look the same, and we do ourselves a disservice when we have to think that my change has to look like Joe's change. So if I'm preaching, and a biker from Hell's Angels, he's been there 20 years, a faithful card-carrying Hell's Angels member, comes to Christ at the same time as a 16-year-old girl in the choir comes to Christ, do you think their sanctification might be just a shade bit different? Absolutely. The biker is entrenched in behaviors and patterns and habits that God in his grace will work out and draw him to holiness, but it's going to look different. And so we don't want to compare ourselves. Who's growing faster than I am or how's he growing? That God's doing a work in you through the power of the spirit for the glory of his name and for your joy. But the good news, the confidence of this transforming power is that it's rooted in the Spirit. Look with me at the last part of 18. He says, for this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. That the Spirit is doing the work of sanctification as you're beholding Christ. This is important to remember. It's in the context of you beholding Christ that the Spirit does the work. If you're going to sit and watch eight hours of television and say, hey, honey, do you think I'm any more Christ-like? It is in the context, the atmosphere of the beholding of Christ, that the Spirit of God is doing the work. So if you don't behold Christ, then the power of the Spirit is not having the same effect on you. It may be bringing conviction, but we're looking for it to bring transformation. So last night when Carol and I were talking about this, uh, we were just thinking about, went down the membership list, and just looking at the changes that have occurred in this church. And I just wanted to encourage you with some of them. I could sit up here for a while. But I was thinking of, and I know people that I can attach to these things. So I'm not going to give names. They're up here, though, if you want to see them later. 
Uh, Increased love for the word. I, I know more than a half a dozen people who have, over the years, found themselves with an increased love for the word and wanting the word to govern their lives more. They didn't used to, but they do now. I think about those um, truth-telling, about moving from a pattern of deceit and lies to now telling the truth, even when it hurts. I think about the nature of, uh, of um, battling lust. I have seen men battle lust. They haven't conquered it completely, but they are in the fight. And they are fighting by faith. They are failing, and they're getting up, repenting, and moving forward. Many of these men are engaged in the battle, and they are finding victory over lust. Issues of discipleship with children. Men who were uninvolved in leading their kids now are moving with greater leadership in the lives of their children. I think about the issues of um, facing death. And walking with loved ones through death, we've seen great grace displayed in the lives of saints and other personal difficulties where people have gone through great personal relational trials, walking by faith with joy in the midst of it, finding God sufficient. These things have been about this just the past few years. And I could go on as we look at the list. I'm thinking God is doing a work among his people. So, folks, we want to change this year in from one degree of glory to another incrementally. If the Lord wants to move us faster, well, praise God. But, but it's normally that incremental step by step, and it comes by beholding. So if we want a year where we're going to grow in our love for God, it's going to begin by this beholding the glory of Christ. And the Spirit will be transforming us from one degree of glory to another. So... Let me uh, pray for us that this might be the burden of our hearts. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this year that we have before us. We don't take it for granted. We are well aware uh, that the number of our days may be up this year. And Father, we ask for the grace to live uh, with a desire to bring great glory to Christ by beholding him. I pray, Father, that, uh, that you would cause the distractions and the misplaced affections that we have, that you would give us grace to both identify and to move beyond them, that we might have both the desire and the time to behold Christ in all of his glory through his word. Father, grant to us a hunger for more of Christ. Grant to us greater desires that will precede greater actions for Christ. Father, thank you for what you're going to do. Thank you for the promise of your word. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. I'd like to call the elders and um, servers forward, please. <laughs>